We're sponsored by the American College of Physicians. It's time for early bird registration for the Internal Medicine Meeting 2021. This will be a three-day live-streamed virtual experience April 29th through May 1st. Visit annualmeeting.acponline.org. Not an ACP member yet? Then join now and save $330. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. And Paul, that sweet, sweet silence means that Stuart is not here. Unfortunately, he is sick, so we're missing the great Stuart Brigham. But with me is the great Dr. Paul Williams. Hi, Paul. Hi, Matt. How are you? Good. And on tonight's episode, Paul, this was a topic, I don't know why we haven't done it now until like beyond episode 250, but this is an episode where we talk about smoking cessation with Steve Baldessari. And Paul, we were reminiscing after we finished recording that addiction medicine was really, it was not a thing when I was in medical school or it was, but it was very like underground, very niche. And it should probably be very mainstream. And there were just some great points on this. Like uh, I just had no, we, we talked about the fact that nicotine replacement is underdosed in a lot of patients, which I thought just should be obvious, but it just tells how much we don't know about addiction medicine that, that should just be more common sense. And you, you also made a great point about the, about the duration. Right. Well, it's, and, and Steve and Dr. Baldessari made the point, which we all know, I, I think intellectually, but forget sometimes that addiction, including tobacco addiction, or nicotine addiction is a chronic illness um, that is relapsing at times. So it's not something that you sort of set it and forget it and treat and you're done. It's something that sometimes requires a much longer duration of therapy than you would think as well. And I found that a, a really, first of all, as overall gestalt, I found very helpful, but just that specific point is something that I don't think of very often, probably give up too soon or give up when I'm ahead and I should actually keep treating probably. Right. Yeah. Like he's telling patients up front, this is going to be months to years that you're going to be on this therapy. It's not going to just be like a couple of weeks. You stop it and, and you're, you're done. So yeah, just fantastic stuff. Everybody go back and listen to our addiction medicine episodes. We have uh we have an entire uh, tab for that on our newly revamped website. So, so check that out. And uh, Paul, can you remind people what do we do on this show? And then could you introduce our wonderful producer and co-host? I'd be happy to do both. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to renew clinical roles and practice changing knowledge. We've already given you a taste up front of what the topic will be. And I am pleased to be joined by the amazing, the fantastic, uh, the tremendous Dr. Carolyn Chan, uh, who produced this episode and is going to tell us about our amazing guest. And one brief interruption, a reminder that this episode will be available for CME credit through our partnership with VCU Health Continuing Education for free at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And now, Dr. Carolyn Chan, how are you? Tell, tell everybody about our guest. We have a great guest today, Dr. Steve Baldosari. He is an assistant professor of medicine at Yale School of Medicine. His clinical research and educational interests converge at the intersection of addiction, behavior, and health. Originally from New York, Dr. Baldosari completed his undergraduate studies as an economics major at Williams College, followed by medical school at Boston University School of Medicine. He then completed his medical training at Yale and joined the faculty in 2017. Today, he's going to teach us a really great framework to approach the treatment of tobacco use disorder. We're going to take a very deep dive into details of medication management and psychosocial interventions that can help our patients be successful in this chronic disease. Uh, so our big goal for this episode today is really just to like take your breath away with all the knowledge we're going to drop. Not up to Stuart, sort of worthy. Bad puns slipped in there very subtly, but you know. No, when the bar is so low, there's nowhere to go but over it. So you did, you did great. That was spectacular. All right. So Steve, welcome. And please give the audience a one-liner about yourself and feel free to include any hobbies or interests outside of medicine. I am a 39-year-old researcher, clinician, and educator with a love of brains, sports, and pizza, and not necessarily in that order. You are in a good town for pizza because I, I have some family from New Haven and uh, I have some family members who would drive from the Philadelphia area up to New Haven 
just to just to get pizza and then drive back in the same day, which to me is crazy. But yeah, it's like I hear it's, it's good. It's like pizza heaven up here. Yeah. So I'll ask my, my usual question now that I'm I finally started to work my way through my backlog of books. So I'm going to ask you for a book recommendation. Um, it can be for doctors. It can just be a good book. I, I'm open. We're not picky here. Oh, it's it's tough to narrow down to one. Uh, I'm I'm gonna if with permission, I'm gonna give you two. Can I give you two? I mean, it's still less than the number of pieces of places <laughs> exactly. you gave us. So, yes, I, I have so many more to give you. I mean, I feel bad. I didn't name them all. Um, so I'm gonna <laughs> say for a, for a good sort of practical nonfiction read, uh, I'm gonna go with the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. So that is a absolutely classic um, insight just into how our minds work and and a lot of the the lessons in, from that book are totally pertinent to a lot of the things that we'll talk about tonight um, I, I believe and then just uh, you know for all for medical people I feel like you know the house of God you know by Samuel Shem is just another absolute classic sure. that uh, that uh, definitely had an impact on my on my thinking and, and my experience going going through training and, and beyond. Yeah, and, and is referenced enough, you just owe it to yourself to read it, just so that you know what other people are talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Do Good, Rex. All right, Carolyn, you're, you're, the floor is yours. Yeah, so I think to follow up that question is, what would you say is your favorite failure, and what did you learn from it? So my, uh, so my original life plan uh, growing up as a, as a kid was uh, to play professional ice hockey. So that, that, was the, that was the initial plan. And I'm sorry to say that that did not pan out. And so that, that would definitely be my, my biggest and, and, and most uh, favorite failure. I, uh, I did learn a lot, though. I learned that, um, you know, to make it to the highest level in something, you've got, you have to be really good. And then on top of that, you have to be really focused because everyone else is really good, right? And, and I think you have to also get a little bit lucky. But um, I'm very happy to, um, to have had that failure because it, it led me here. And I'm, uh, I'm loving, I'm loving my, my life. I'm loving my career at this point. That's great advice. Is there any favorite advice that you've received along the way in your career? Could have been as a trainee or, or now as an attending that you wanted to pass on to the audience? Yeah. I think the best advice that I ever got was to just focus on the journey and, uh, and not the destination. You know, I think it's, it's good to set goals. It's good to have, um, have things to work toward, but I think having a great process and really, um, really enjoying the the details, the journey that you're on that that seems to be the most important thing, and that's that's what I'm I'm trying to do uh, going forward. Hey, listeners, what are you waiting for? This is your last chance to get the early bird discount for ACP's Internal Medicine Meeting 2021. You'll get the unmatched education you've come to expect from ACP in an engaging, richly interactive, virtual format, live streaming April 29th through May 1st. You can earn more CME and mock than ever before, plus post-meeting access for all the programmatic sessions for 30 days or three years with premium access. For our team, the annual meeting is always such an exciting time. We love to attend as many sessions as possible and then get together and talk about our favorite practice-changing pearls. And this year, we can do it all from the comfort of our own home so I can wear sweatpants to all the sessions, which has always been a dream. Catch the early bird discount now before it flies away, January 31st. ACP members save $80 on registration. Visit annualmeeting.acponline.org. Not an ACP member yet? Then join now and save $330. Before we jump into our first case of the day, we want to set the stage for everybody and remind folks that many individuals who smoke cigarettes develop a tobacco use disorder, which is an addiction to nicotine. It is really important that we view tobacco use disorders within the framework of a biopsychosocial model of addiction. As we know, smoking is the leading cause of preventable death worldwide, and we view nicotine dependence as a chronic disease that has a relaxing and remitting course for patients. Dr. Baldessari recommends we recognize and treat tobacco use disorders as a complex chronic disease and frame this course for patients as not dissimilar to treating other chronic diseases, such as high blood pressure or diabetes, for which management is complicated and occurs over an extended period of time. The five A's model for treating tobacco dependence can be a starting framework for clinicians to ask about the topic of smoking cessation with their patients. First, ask about their tobacco use at every visit. Advise them to quit if they smoke in a clear and personalized manner. Assess their willingness to quit. 
assist in quitting, and arrange follow-up and support to help your patient along their way in their tobacco cessation journey. And now on to our first case from Cashlack. Okay, with that, how about a case from Cashlack? To kick off our case, we have Miss Nicoletta Patch. She is a 50-year-old female with a history of opioid use disorder, currently on buprenorphine. She has a history of depression, and she is returning to her clinic today to discuss her recent spirometry tests that demonstrate she has COPD. She has been smoking since she's been 15 years old, and at this time is smoking about two packs a day. She has really tried to quit smoking in the past. She's tried gum, but said that she just didn't like the taste. And she reports to you that she has friends with COPD and is really worried that she's going to need oxygen one day and wants some advice uh, about how to quit smoking. So I think, Steve, to kick it off, how would you approach counseling Miss Patch on smoking cessation? You know, the, the first step, just like everything that, that we do, is in taking a great history. And really the way I like to approach um, these things is to really start from the beginning and just get a brief biography of this patient, you know, with specific um, emphasis on their smoking history. So what age did did they start? So age of onset, really, really important. Um, The vast majority of long-term smokers start as teens. And we know, of course, that um, early exposure to drugs, um, especially in the adolescent period, fundamentally rewires the brain in ways that don't happen if you start later on. So just understanding that the age of onset, the um, the sort of duration for how long they've been smoking, how much they've been smoking over time, what the prior treatments were that they got and their sort of course, were they ever able to achieve a period of abstinence? If so, what were they doing that made them successful? How do they do it? Um, another kind of useful question that, that I like to ask is... Um, how early, how soon after you wake up in the morning do you have your first cigarette? If you get a patient that's telling you, I have my first cigarette, like right when I wake up in the morning, that's a signal that that patient is more highly addicted than a person that say, oh, I wake up and, you know, after two or three hours, I'll have a cigarette. So there, there are fundamental differences there. But the time to first cigarette in the morning is kind of a good, um, good little marker of, um, of the degree of nicotine uh, dependence. So that's kind of the the initial sort of starting point. You really want to get it get a sense of where they're where they came from and where they're at at now. Get sort of the the whole chronology. The next step for me that's really critical. And this is sort of a major branch point is to assess and understand the patient's motivation and insight. So the one thing I can tell you with a hundred percent certainty of all the things that we're going to talk about, if a person's not motivated to stop smoking there's absolutely no way that, that they will do so. So they have to really want to do this and they have to believe that the, um, the downsides of, of quitting are, are far outweighed by the benefits. So they, they want, you have to believe that they're, they want to do this. And so a good kind of leading question is to, to ask, you know, how do you feel about your smoking and let them sort of just free associate, you know, what are the, what are the things that you're concerned about? And most people who are coming to medical attention will will kind of have a health issue that and they understand that there's a link. Some people don't actually know. They don't even realize that that's, that's what's happening and that the smoking really is causing these problems. And then they'll likely tell you about some of their the benefits they get, right? Why do they smoke? Why do people smoke? Well, you know, it helps me relax or it makes me feel better. Or it reduces stress, right? Um, but helping them sort of start to see the connections between smoking and other health problems and helping them find their own reasons for, um, for why they, they think it's important to stop smoking. Very, very important. So with Ms. Patch, she's already, she's kind of come to us with the answer to that question. She, she recently was diagnosed with COPD. She has a friend on oxygen. She's worried about being on oxygen. Carolyn, do we know any of the other history for her? Like the wh- how how long it takes for her to get a cigarette in the morning and when she started that sort of stuff as soon as she wakes up five minutes five ten minutes first thing she does before she even reaches for her morning cup of coffee right so there's a couple there's a couple important really important historical clues just in the case that that we talked about that tells me that this patient's going to be very challenging to um to, to treat to get her to be abstinent so again young age of onset early time to first cigarette. And then um, there's two other important barriers here. 
Um, one of them is the, the presence of an existing mood disorder. So this patient has a history of depression, which um, I'll say off the bat that um, we should treat all people with well-controlled um, psychiatric disorders with any of the approved treatments that, that we'll go over later on. But that's, uh, that's, that's an important sort of risk factor for having a, a, a tougher course, right? So she's got, we have to really make sure that that, that, that mood disorder is well-treated, right? And well-controlled currently, or else we're going to have a, a really tough time. And then the other component to this is the existence of a, um, a coexisting drug use disorder. So this, this patient has opioid use disorder and is maintained on um, Suboxone. And so we know that um, people with opioid use disorder, there's a very high um, concurrent smoking rates and that their, um, their long-term cessation rates and response to treatments tend to be uh, lower than, than the um, other smoking population. So those are kind of um, some wrinkles in this case that will certainly be things that we'll want to pay attention to when we're thinking about dealing with the smoking issue. We're going to have to make sure that these other conditions are at the very least well-controlled um, at the start. So I'd like to go back, if I can, to, to the patient's motivation. So we, we sort of handed it to it here, but I, I feel like in my own experience, I mean, patients know that smoking is bad for them. I am not surprising them by telling them that smoking is going to make their breathing worse or it's going to put them at risk for cardiovascular disease. I feel like they know that. And oftentimes the motivators I see are, my kids are on me all the time, or God, it's just so expensive anymore. Like I just can't afford to do it. I'm just wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing with us your framework for how you determine what the patient's internal motivations are. Because I, I feel like figuring out what motivates them is probably more helpful than trying to sort of scare them with the eventual health benefits for a lot of patients. And sometimes it is health motivated, but sometimes it's not. So I'm wondering how you, how you have that conversation with patients. Yeah. I think the most important thing is just listening to what they're telling, telling us and going with that, right? If, if the most important reason to them that they don't want to smoke is because their teeth are yellow, then yeah, that's, that's the most important thing, you know, like that's, that's the thing that, that we should use as motivation for you. Or if it's because your clothes don't smell good, you know, um, that that's the most important thing. So part of the process with the behavioral counseling that, that, um, the patients will get is the method called motivational interviewing, which is essentially, um, took a non-judgmental way to allow patients to come up with their own, um, internal motivation and their own reasons for why they want to change behavior. Um, and, and again, it's good to, and our, our kind of role in that is mostly just as a support person, right? As a person to be empathetic as a person to listen, um, to kind of discuss some of the concerns, some of the fears, to correct any um, misperceptions that they that they might have, but really just to be an advocate. I think that's kind of the most important thing because you have to realize in the larger context here, you know, we're we're kind of care providers and consultants, but ultimately the patient has got to be driving this thing, right? It's like you can't you can't be there at home with them putting the medicine on. Uh, you know, putting the patch on them or making sure they take their medicine. It, it's got to, they have to want to do that. Right. And so our job is to help them either strengthen their pre-existing reasons for wanting to quit or encouraging them and helping them find new reasons why it's, it's good for them. So we've taken a thorough history. We've assessed now why this person wants to quit. We've really dug into their motivations What's the next next thing you would do for Miss Patch? Are we are we in, at the point where we're going to talk about medications or uh, behavioral therapies? Yeah, I think if you um, so if you have a patient that you've kind of taken a good history, you've assessed them, they um, you know it's clear that they are motivated that they that or at the very least that they're ambivalent and they're willing to try something, then absolutely that's the that's the moment to to kind of come in with very strong advice and. You're always going to say, you know, hey, I strongly um, recommend that, you know, we try to help you stop smoking now. Um, we're going to offer you, you know, as much treatment as, as we can. And, and that will vary depending on, on location, um, what resources are available. But um, we want to always make sure they don't leave that appointment without, at the bare minimum, a prescription. But um, ideally, um, again, sort of the, the best thing that we'll, as we'll talk about is sort of the combination of um, pharmacotherapy and behavioral therapy. And that can be uh, delivered in various forms. But we really want to make sure that um, we kind of get, you know, we get a commitment that we show that we're committed to treating this, to treating them. And um, 
you know, get them sort of started on that, on that track. So that, that's, that's sort of like, you know, priority one, one, two, and three. Um, and then I think the, you know, the, the last part of it is emphasizing the, the real importance of close follow-up. So making sure that, um, that they're not thinking that, okay, you know, we're going to prescribe for you the meds and then you're going to take them and go home and that's going to be the end of it, right? It's really, again, we have to emphasize that this is a long-term thing. So this is not, um, you know, oh, you, you get this and then, and then that's the end of it. It's, you know, we, we want to treat you. We want to have you come back. We want to see how you're doing. We want to work with you over the long, over the long haul. And that's definitely the message that um, we want to leave them with, which is that, you know, we're here for you. We want to continue to see you um, specifically for this. So let's say she's ready. She's going to quit. She's got her internal motivations and she she wants your opinion. She's debating whether it would be better for her to sort of like taper off, you know, like her two packs, like do one pack, uh, one and a half pack, or if she should just like try and go cold turkey. And she wants your advice about which would be better. Yeah. So no one knows what will be better for this particular patient, right? Because she's never been studied in a, in a clinical trial, right? We always hear about the evidence, the evidence, the evidence, but when there's a person in front of you, you don't, you don't know what's going to work. So I would start by asking her what approach she thinks is going to be um, the, the easiest or the, the best for her. And I would find out if, if she had any prior attempts, how she did it in the past. Um, but I think either approach could, could work. Um, I think, again, this patient, you know, in my, in my mind, this is going to take a while. This is not likely to, um, to be a fast, uh, you know, okay, come back in a week follow up and I'm abstinent and I'm, and I'm no problem. I think this one's going to be probably a, a, a slower, a slower wean. It's probably going to be a gradual reduction. Um, and then hopefully eventually a, a tapering off to, to no cigarettes, um, daily. But I think there's, um, you know, the key thing to remember is that there's no real one right answer, right? We really have to get, I think our minds around this, this sort of personalized care, especially in this domain where the patients are so complex, they have such specific, um, you know, comorbidities and, and other issues that um, we really want to go to them for the answers first. And, um, you know, if they say, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't know what to do, then, um, you know, you just recommend whatever, um, whatever approach you've had the most experience with. I mean, for me, I would probably suggest to this patient um, more of a gradual transition, given that there's sort of a heavy, heavy smoking history, given that there's other, there's other issues going on. I would be surprised if this, if this one could um, go abstinent right away, unless she has a history of, you know, I quit cold turkey three times and I'd say, well, maybe that's something to consider. Maybe you can try that again with the meds this time. So that kind of thing. When you mentioned getting a commitment, do you have them set a quit date? And and for her, you said you you'd give it more of a slow approach potentially. So would you say, okay, a month from now, you know, I want you to try to slow down how much you're smoking over the next month, and we'll set a quit date in X number of days or weeks from now. Is that what you meant by getting a commitment and and the close follow up? What might be what might that look like for her? Yeah, I mean, it can be, you know, the, the quit date is a sort of a, it's an arbitrary thing. I mean, I think some people like the idea of a quit date. They like to think, you know, all right, like, I'm just going to just going to stop right on, on this day and I'm going to take my medicine and all will be well. You know, for for most of the patients that I see, that's generally not realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we, we want to we can try that. It's certainly one approach. Um, but I think the the more important issue here is just the commitment to change, right? It's Got not it. necessarily how it's done. It's that uh, this person is committed. This person wants to, um, wants to be abstinent from cigarettes, wants to change their life, wants to be healthier. Um, so I think again, it, it's sort of the, the, um, the details in which you get to that is more of the art of medicine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of how I, I, I approach it. I try to take more of a holistic view and I'm not so binary in it. I kind of work, try to work with the patient, find out, you know, what, what would they be most comfortable with and, and go from there. I, I am curious. I've had uh, some patients who have higher numbers, higher packs per day, right? You know, two, three, like very high packs per day of nicotine who, who definitely described nicotine withdrawal just, um, 
quite significant, you know, nicotine withdrawal, and that's sort of how they end up starting smoking again. So in a patient who uses, you know, two packs a day, when I think about using a nicotine patch for her, something like that, is that going to be enough? Is that is like 21 MCG, sort of the higher amount of nicotine patch, is that going to be enough to prevent nicotine withdrawal if she is interested in stopping cold turkey? Probably not. So, um, so one of the troubling things about um, estimating with the nicotine patch is that we really don't have a good way to quantify how much nicotine that people actually consume from a cigarette. Because when you think about it, one person smokes a pack a day, uh, that's 20 cigarettes. They might take three puffs off the cigarette, put it out, throw it away. Another person might take uh, three quarters of the cigarette or like, you know, 15 puffs and then put it out. That person, that second person is getting a lot more nicotine per day than the first one. So, so it's hard to, hard to quantify exactly how much replacement they'll need. I will tell you that the common thing that, that I see with a lot of these patients is that underdosing tends to be more the norm. So yeah, a person that's, you know, over a pack a day, probably um, starting with two patches is probably going to be a better bet. But again, hard to know, right? I mean, if they're just taking a little bit of each one, maybe one patch is enough. Um, the general the problem with the just a patch, and I know we'll talk more details about some of the treatments, but the patch is long acting. Um, it's great as a controller medicine, but it doesn't deal with um, the cravings. So people, when they when you smoke a cigarette, the reason it's so highly addictive is that it's giving you the nicotine, not only in a high amount, but it's giving it to you very fast. And it gives it to you in, so inhalation is the fastest way that you can consume a drug because it delivers the drug to the pulmonary circulation, directly to the arterial supply, and then to the brain. It takes about um, six to eight seconds. Uh, it's faster than injection. And, um, you know, even the shorter acting forms of nicotine, you know, the oral, uh, even the inhaler, they're all, they're all much slower to, to act. So that's another sort of challenge when we think about kind of dosing and, and those sorts of issues. But, but I would say, Carolyn, to your question, um, with a heavier smoker, I think it's totally reasonable to, to be more liberal with our nicotine replacement. Do pharmacies give you a hard time, Carolyn? Have you ordered like two 21 milligram patches for one of your patients before that smokes three or four packs a day? And Generally, I find that people have extra patches at home <laughs> from prior <laughs> quit attempts, as awful as that may sound. So I will write a new prescription and I'll, I will say, lovely, use those. Don't look at it. I should probably ask them about expiration date or something, but I have not dared to go that far because people have so many quit attempts, but I actually have found um, at least like anecdotal success, like higher rates of success of cutting back with that because I'm adequately treating the nicotine withdrawal component. Um, but I think Steve, to your point too, how, how would you manage someone's cravings? Like, would you recommend a lozenge, a gum? Do you find that effective? Yeah. So the, so in terms of pharmacotherapy, we'll just kind of maybe just go through the the, briefly the strategy, but basically there are, um, there are three, there are three FDA approved drugs that I'll, I'll call controller meds. So these are sort of longer acting, um, drugs. So the nicotine patch, um, which is a full agonist of the alpha four beta two nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, um, varenicline, which is a partial agonist of that same receptor, um, which is a pill that, um, you take, uh, twice a day. And then um, bupropion, which is a uh, different uh, class altogether. It's a neuronal uptake, uh, reuptake inhibitor of norepinephrine and dopamine. So you definitely want your patients, pretty much all your patients on at least one of the controller meds. And um, you can have them on, um, on two or three even. So there's, there's not a limit, right? Um, you can combine these things in any way that, that you want. Um, but you want to have them on a controller med. And the point of that is basically to get sort of a, a baseline level of control over the withdrawal symptoms that, um, Carolyn, that, you, that you're referring to. Um, and sort of just touch on withdrawal very briefly, but, you know, this is really unpleasant stuff and it, and it, can, be, um, and it can be severe. So we're talking about mood disturbances, um, you know, increased appetite and weight gain, irritability, um, you know, fatigue, sleep problems. It's, it's really a, a, a very, very, can be a very uh, difficult withdrawal syndrome. So you want to have um, definitely a controller med. Then 
On top of that, you want to have something that's shorter acting, and that's to deal with the craving issue, right? So craving is something that can persist, and that's this is the thing that typically can trigger relapse, which is that people might get out of the withdrawal phase, which is usually a between like peaks between two to three days, can go on for longer, but those cravings can last months to years. Okay, so that that can that may never go away. And so with a craving issue, you really want to have something that's shorter acting. And that's where you have the other forms of nicotine replacement, right? Which are the PR, usually they're prescribed as PRN meds. So you have things like the nicotine gum, the lozenge, the inhaler, or the nasal spray. So those are kind of the, um, kind of the choices. And again, they're, um, they're mainly just limited by the speed in which they can deliver the nicotine. So the nasal spray is the fastest, but it's generally the least well-tolerated, um, at least among, um, among most patients. It can cause some kind of like kind of burning, um, can irritate the throat. And then you have sort of like gum, lozenge. Um, they're, they're all sort of similar. You know, they'll peak, they'll, they'll reach peak nicotine levels after, you know, about an hour as compared with, um, you know, a cigarette, which takes five minutes, right? So that's that's kind of what what we're up against there. I have not had experience with outside of the I think the gum and the lozenges maybe the nasal spray the inhalers I haven't used. So I'm just going to ask like practically speaking, is there a cost difference? Is there I don't know if those are not on the formularies that I've worked at for some reason or or maybe I just didn't know to look for them. The, the main limitation is just that they they require the the inhaler and the um, nasal spray require um, prescription. And um, so that, that just kind of limits availability in some cases. Insurance coverage is a big issue, just generally speaking. So not all meds are fully covered by all insurances. I will say in my experience, believe it or not, the best coverage seems to come from the public insurance. So, um, so our Medicaid um, covered all of them, uh, at least till recently. I think it still does. But um, that, that's one of the reasons probably why the, the gum and lozenge are, are just more ubiquitous because you can get them also over the counter. Um, so that's the kind of advantage there. And people, I think, just tend to tolerate them a little bit better. All right. As, as resident dumb guy, I'm going to ask for um, specific nuts and bolts. Can you, when you're starting a patient, let's just start with a nicotine patch because I feel like that's what most people reach for. And, and certainly we can talk about whether that's the best option or not. But how, how do you counsel patients how to even start it? Like, what do you give them any kind of inspiratory guidance or their side effects they should be mindful of? So when you're, when you're starting, because I feel like the mistake we often make is like, here's a prescription for 21 patches, Godspeed, good luck, and I'll see you in six months. And that's not very helpful. So how do you, how do you navigate that? And how do you initiate that specific therapy? And then maybe we can talk about the other modalities too, as we go, because they seem, they all seem to have some nuances that maybe I sometimes see that we forget to discuss. Right. So, so, um, Again, I, I always try to prescribe um, in pairs. So I always try to do one controller medicine, um, which is either the patch, varenicline, or Welbutrin, bupropion. But say we're starting with the patch. The typical, uh, the guidelines suggest using a 21 milligram patch if they smoke um, 10 or more cigarettes a day. Otherwise, you can start with a 14 milligram patch. Again, we sort of talked about the fact that we can't really know if that's going to be adequate until we try it. Um, and that we can start with higher doses of patch um, if we if we expect they're heavy smokers and going to have more trouble. So I tell them basically just wake up in the morning, put the patch on, and um, change it out once a day, and just make that a part of your routine. And I and I really try to emphasize to them that that alone may not do it for them, and and the fact that it's not going to work quickly. So again, you got to think about its transdermal route. So it's going to build up nicotine in the blood very slowly over a 24-hour period. But there's, they're, they're, what these patients are used to is they're used to these spikes and levels that go up and down when they keep redosing with a cigarette. So, so I say just put it on and leave it on. The other thing that I emphasize is um, if you're still smoking with the patch on, um, keep the patch on. Don't take it off. If they're still smoking, it just means that we're not dosing them adequately, right? Or we're not controlling their, their cravings, right? Or possibly not controlling their withdrawal symptoms. So, um, so that's where the shorter acting forms come in. So that's where, you know, they say, okay, doc, like I got my patch on, but I, but I still wanted to smoke. I say, well, that's where you want to try to go to, um, go to your gum, go to your lozenge, go to your inhaler, um, try to use those. And really we have to promote aggressive use of those. So, they can be using those every 15 to 30 minutes, right? 
They just got to try to use them to um, suppress those um, those urges. You know, in terms of sort of side effects, nicotine toxicity um, does happen. It's pretty rare. Typically, it will present initially with GI symptoms. So it's usually um, nausea, nausea or vomiting. Um, sometimes they'll get heart palpitations. Sometimes they'll get lightheadedness, dizziness. It kind of um, would you can tell them it might remind you of when you first smoked a cigarette, right? Before they became super tolerant to it, right? So the first time they may have had those, those symptoms that might bring them back. The, the solution, of course, usually usually they're doing this while they're also smoking. So they, they have to be educated. It's not the patch you want to take off. You want to just back off of your smoking a little bit, right? So that's um, that's a challenge in sort of educating them on, on those uh, issues. I love that point because I think classically... Uh, at least I was taught if someone's going to smoke, it could be dangerous. You know, for, if someone's going to smoke, whether have the patch on, it's dangerous. So tell them to take the patch off, smoke a cigarette, <laughs> then put the patch God. back on. I like your, I like what you're counseling us on better. Well, I think if, if there were some, there's just a relatively recent British study that actually looked at sort of loading with the nicotine patch and smoking at the same time. Like that was part of the design in terms of tobacco cessation. So it's actually looking, it's being looked at as a way to quit and not even necessarily like, I think we were kind of relying on patients to hope that it would kill them instantly. So if they, as long as they thought that, they would smoke less, which is probably not a healthy or ethical approach. So I, I, yeah, I think your counseling is better. Yeah, I think we just have to recognize that if you know if they're using the medicine but they're still smoking, it, it just means that we need to treat them more. Right. I think that's that's the issue. It just means you need a greater intensity of treatment, and that. By the way, that may not necessarily mean more medicine, right? It may mean other behavioral strategies and, and things like that. And to the point of how do we tell folks how to take the short acting when you said it takes an hour to get um, their nicotine plasma levels to where that would be equivalent of a cigarette. Often I'm behind if I'm telling them to wait for a craving, right? So when I'm really starting somebody off at the very start of their smoking cessation plan, I'm like, I want you to take this every two hours, right? So we don't get behind and then can use that um, to get a better sense of their their nicotine need in combination with their cigarette use and create this this more holistic plan to, to start things off. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like that idea a lot. I think you want to definitely try to get on top of it, um, getting the patch on, that'll increase their basal level and then, um, you know, try to get them, get them uh, to use the, the other, uh, the PRN ones as much as possible to really keep those those cravings down. And when you talk about the uh, the as needed stuff, that's all nicotine replacement. There's no, uh, the, the meds, the, the meds that we classically think of, they're all controllers. And it's one of the nicotine delivery systems that we're using as a, um, for cravings, correct? Yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, okay. so if we had a patient, and again, you can use the the PRNs um, with the other two meds. So if you if you have yeah. a patient on varenicline, um, varenicline typically starts at uh, you know half a milligram daily, and then that's titrated up to one milligram twice daily um, over about a period of a week. That will sort of they'll continue with that, and then again, if they're having cravings on top of that, they can go and use um, the other NRT products. Same thing goes for uh, bupropion. And for someone like Miss Patch, since she's smoking two packs a day. And I commonly see the gum comes in either a four milligram or a two milligram. Is there a cutoff the way there is with the the patches, like how much they smoke per day, whether you would choose the four milligram or the two milligram gum? Again, the, the guidelines will say, um, I think the guidelines base the gum and the, and the lozenges off of time to first cigarette in the morning. Um, so they say oh. if it's less than 30 minutes, um, you'll use the higher strength. If it's more, you'll use the lower strength. I don't think you have to go by that. I think with this kind of a patient... You can kind of just go intuitively. Like if she told me I smoked 30 minutes after, I'd still give her the four milligram. So again, it's a little bit of the art of medicine here. Um, but you, you know, again, given that the common problem is underdosing, I think it's better to err on the side of giving them more upfront. And, you know, if they tell you truly that, you know, hey, I use this thing and I'm not smoking and I'm getting side effects, you know, sort of nicotine toxicity side effects, then you definitely want to think about, yeah, I really need to lower my dose. I just find that's just much less common that 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 happens, right? More more typically, it's just that they're still smoking. And can we, while we're, I, I don't know why I'm hung up on the patches, but while while we're thinking about it, in terms, I believe the commercial products actually have a sort of stepwise tapering thing as part of it. So you start at 21 milligrams for six weeks, and then two weeks of 14, and two weeks of seven. I'm not even sure that's necessarily evidence based. I'm wondering what's your approach in terms of what's what's your endpoint when you're doing the nicotine replacement therapy? If is it based on time or behaviors or some uh, some combination? 
Yeah, that's such an important question. So, so duration of therapy. So again, the, the recommendations are kind of based off of clinical studies, right? That use specific protocols and the goal, generally speaking, if you think of the broad goal, right? The broad goal is we don't want our patients smoking and we really don't want them on any drugs, right? We don't want them on nicotine at all, ideally. Um, that's, that's the ideal. In the, in the real world, we have to be more flexible and we have to think about our patient, both in terms of what's working for them and as far as the probability of, of relapsing. And I would just say sort of, so, so the first thing to note is that um, all of these meds for, for smoking addiction are safe to use for at least a year, right? And probably longer, you know, studies don't go that long, so you don't really know for sure. Um, but when you think about the trade-off between possibly discontinuing and possibly having a relapse back into smoking and what that might do to somebody, uh, the, the, the use of using the meds longer term becomes a lot more appealing, right? When you just think about a risk benefit ratio. So, um, so my approach is, you know, if it's working, don't mess with it quickly. If you're going to taper off, that's fine. I think there can be some patients that where there may be a role for, for tapering, but um, you want to be really sure and you want to do it really slowly because, you know, again, relapse is common, right? It's, it's common even with the medicine. So, and without the medicine, we know it's more common. So, yeah. So I think most of these meds, you should just think about once they're started, you should think about continuing them for, for a while. And for a while, I mean like in minimum, absolute minimum three months, but chances are a year or more for most people. And, and some people probably need it for life. So let's, let's say our patient, so our patient's excited to quit. She, you've, you've talked about the different modalities that are available and you, she's opting for both the nicotine replacement therapy in terms of the patch and then possibly even some, some gum with it, but then also would like to start the varenicline. So I'm wondering if you could just sort of talk us through how you would talk her through initiating these therapies and sort of how long you would actually treat for. I think those would be um, two helpful points. Yeah, absolutely. So the, um, so the varenicline is going to start at um, a slightly lower dose than the the, to the, the uh, controller dose. So you start them at you know half a milligram daily, and it titrates up gradually over over about a week. Um, and the point of doing that is ma mainly just to make sure that they are tolerating the medicine. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with you know how much they're smoking or other factors. It's just basically you want to make sure that they can, they can take it. Right. And so some of the common side effects that you want to watch out for mostly is GI upset. Uh, so nausea, there can be sleep disturbances, so insomnia, vivid dreams, stuff like that. Um, but usually they're pretty mild and most people will, um, will tolerate this. So you want to get them up to, um, a milligram daily, uh, a milligram twice daily for, um, and, and you want to use that for a minimum of three months but as we kind of mentioned earlier, a lot of patients, I think, are going to benefit from longer term use of, of all of these, these drugs. And I think we, we definitely um, want to be very careful about tapering down and or discontinuing because relapse is high. So, um, so for most patients, you know, um, I would consider long term treatment. So a year or more for some, again, it's going to be customized and it's going to have to also account for what the patients want to do, how they feel, um, how they're doing with the meds. Are there any problems? But these are all safe meds to be on for, um, for quite a while. And she can continue, even if she's not fully abstinent from smoking, uh, from what we've talked about already, we know now she doesn't have to peel off the nicotine patch every time she smokes. Uh, and then the varenicline can be on even as she's tapering down, if she wants to taper herself down to a smaller amount before she completely abstains. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so the, the main mistake we don't want to make is we don't want to withdraw medicine. If the person's still smoking, we, if anything, we're wanting to increase medicine and or behavioral interventions. So, so think of it that way. If they're, if they're still smoking, it just means that our, our treatment plan still needs to be strengthened a little bit. And for our patient who has, who has this past diagnosis of depression, and you did allude to this a little bit, but I, I'm wondering uh, in terms of the safety of the varenicline, I feel like there were sort of early concerns when it was first came out in terms of suicidality and, and um, worsening sort of underlying mood disorders. So what's your, how concerned should we be about that? And what's your approach to patients who have comorbid uh, behavioral health issues? 
Yeah, so this is this is really important. So the the presence of a well-controlled psychiatric diagnosis is not a contraindication to any of the tobacco treatments. So you can use varenicline, you can use bupropion, you can use nicotine. Um, there are no significant differences in adverse psychiatric outcomes by treatment type. So we know this, there was a very large clinical trial that was done. Um, they compared all the treatments. It's called the EAGLES trial. Um, but in general, the rate of psychiatric adverse events is around 6% for people who have a known history of, of underlying psychiatric illness and about 2% um, in those without, without psych disorders, regardless of which treatment is used. So, um, so the key thing to remember is that nicotine and, and some of the other smoke constituents do have antidepressant effects. So if they stop smoking and you withdraw the antidepressant effect for a small number of individuals, that could precipitate severe psychiatric side effects as a withdrawal syndrome. So what that means then is that no matter what treatment strategy you choose, it's just very important to monitor our patients for these severe side effects, psychiatric side effects, and really, especially if they have a, an underlying psych disorder, and to ask them specifically about issues with depression, issues with suicidal ideation. Um, and regardless, again, of whether it's varenicline, the patch, well, uh, bupropion, we want to be paying attention to those kinds of things. And I did want to ask, and then I'll stop monopolizing. Um, bupropion, I feel like we've not talked much about. Is there a certain patient type that you select that medication for versus varenicline? Um, so who who is who does that benefit the most, if anyone? So head to head, um, if you're just thinking, considering the efficacy in in for smoking cessation, varenicline is um, superior to bupropion. Uh, bupropion um, is basically good in people with with co coexisting depression. Does not mean that it's the first line necessarily, but it's obviously it's a it has efficacy for depression for major depression. So it can be useful there. The thing that you uh, want to look out for, I'm sorry, one other thing about that is um, it can induce uh, some weight loss, which is sometimes um, a major concern for patients because when you stop smoking, weight gain is a common problem. So it, it can be useful for that. Main issues, again, to watch out for is that uh, it can lower seizure threshold. So you don't want to use bupropion in patients with either seizure disorders or who have for example, major alcohol use and might be at risk for something like alcohol withdrawal. So you just have to be a little bit careful with that. But otherwise, it's uh, it's usually reasonably well tolerated. It does have some side effects. Usually they're um, relating to uh, sleep issues, so insomnia, and then sometimes dry mouth. But um, again, you wouldn't necessarily, um, you, you want to kind of customize the treatment for the patient. So a good patient to have to give this to might be someone with sort of coexisting depression and or someone who's very worried about waking. Great. Perfect. Thank you. So I think we have, I think we've discussed pretty thoroughly all the, all the choices, uh, the nicotine replacement, the bupropion, the varenicline. And uh, we, we, we skimmed over a little bit the behavioral therapies. So which, what are, what's commonly available that, and what should our listeners look out for in their, in their local area? Yeah, so this is this is really important um, because sort of behavioral therapy and just general psychosocial support has such a major impact on the outcomes. And these resources are definitely going to vary locally. I would stress the first thing that we you want to look into is the availability of of social work in in your institution. Do you have access to social work for a lot of patients? That could make a big difference. Um, we know that stress is a major contributor both to continued smoking and to relapse. So um, making sure we're addressing some of the, the social concerns, whether it's unstable housing, job issues, um, instability in the home, whatever it, it might be, that that's a, a critical feature of it. At certain centers, so at my center, for example, we actually have a comprehensive tobacco treatment service, which is great because they provide kind of all-in-one um care at, at the, um, at the center. So they can do motivational interviewing. They can do cognitive behavioral therapy, which is going to kind of help the patients identify maladaptive thought patterns and try to, 
um, help them identify triggers that they can um, prevent from happening, uh, and they can prescribe medications and longitudinal follow-up all in one. So if you have a comprehensive um, center, it's certainly a good thing to utilize. In places um, with fewer resources, the um, the telephone quit lines are great. So 1-800-QUIT-NOW. These are widely available. They give free counseling, um, and many of them will supply um, some nicotine replacement products for, for a time. So um, making sure that your patients, um, again, know and are able to, to utilize those, is um, it would be really valuable. And then um, I don't have as much experience with group um, group therapies, but they have been studied in small studies, and they they are effective. There's no one specific type of behavioral intervention that's necessarily superior to any other. But the thing that we do know is that it tends to improve outcomes in a dose dependent manner. So basically, the more behavioral support they can get, the better that they do. Hypnosis, is there anything to that? <laughs> uh, we don't have any evidence that it that it works, but uh, you, you never know. Uh, you know, if somebody wants to try it, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm all in favor of, of trying something because you don't know what's going to work for, again, for your patient, right? Maybe hypnosis is the answer. I don't know. Has not, um, has not panned out in, uh, in research studies. And I'll, and I'll ask, since we're on the topics like this, what about acupuncture? Any evidence or have you any anecdotal success? No, not not to my knowledge. Yeah, <laughs> Hope springs <laughs> eternal, though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just the normal hard work of social work, <laughs> life stressors. I think that piece is so important. You know, a lot of uh, just life stress, food insecurity. I'm hearing a lot of my patients, especially during these times, say that that is driving them to increase their smoking use. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, if we want to think about kind of environment just in general is it's, it's so, so important when we, um, when we're thinking about this issue and you can imagine a sort of a, a very, um, difficult environment might be one in which the person lives with other smokers in the household. So they're around those constant cues and constant things that might trigger cravings. And so one strategy there is to encourage them and try to engage their family members and their friends who smoke and get them into treatment, right? So we're social animals, so if one person's doing it, maybe uh, maybe we all should be doing it, or vice versa. So so that's that's an issue, and just being around other smokers in general is going to make it difficult. And then really, you know, any other sort of socioeconomic stress, so just poverty, not having enough money, not being able to get you know good food, um, social isolation. So we've all kind of uh, experienced this now for 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 times during this, uh, this unprecedented, uh, last nine months, <laughs> but, um, that's, that's, that's a big issue. And then sort of the converse of that, right. A person that, um, is more likely to succeed is someone that has supportive family members and friends has people that are around them who aren't smoking and particularly, um, former smokers who maybe could mentor the patient and can kind of give them advice and how do you, you know, how do you go through it? Someone who's been there and done that, right. Might be a good person, um, and then just someone that's got kind of a stable and uh, calm home life. It's been rough. I know anecdotally, like I feel like the triggers that come up over and over again are stress and boredom. Those are always the big two. Either someone makes me mad or I'm <laughs> bored and I just have anything else to do. And then you put someone in the middle of a global pandemic where they're isolated, worried that they're going to die, but also bored out of their mind. And I don't know if I can get a single patient to just not smoke more during this pandemic. I'll consider it a victory. Like it's just been an especially challenging time. I'm not sure what your experiences have been, but it's been it's been tough to have that conversation right now because the two main triggers are just there always. Yeah, it's true. I don't know. Um, I don't know if there's data out yet on what happened with overall smoking rates in the pandemic. I know that definitely, um, Paul, the two things you're referring to absolutely will increase the risk of people smoking uh, more, quitting less. You know, the, the thing we were wondering about was, well, maybe the pandemic would, would create more fear that they that they need to stop smoking, right? Because, um, you know, you have to be the healthier you are at baseline, the more likely you are to survive this thing. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know which effect is going to dominate yet, but we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll be finding out. Yeah. The other substance use disorders have not been doing well during this time. So I can't imagine nicotine is going to fare too, too much better. I agree. I think it's likely. Carolyn, do you want to just, uh, bring us to the last case and we can end talking about the, uh, e-cigarettes? Yes. Absolutely. So (laughs) 
Miss Nicoletta Patch. She wants to bring up this very important thing to you because she has been told by her friend that she her friend has switched to using vapes, nicotine vapes, and says it has helped her stop cigarette smoking entirely. So she's really interested on your opinion. Is this something she should try? What's the difference between like vaping versus electronic cigarettes? And is there any role in in these modalities for her care for her smoking cessation? All right. Well, you just hit on the most controversial uh, issue in, in all of tobacco control. Um, so, uh, so basically, so first we'll just briefly um, define the terms, make sure everyone knows. So, um, so electronic cigarettes um, are battery-operated devices that heat and aerosolize a liquid solution that may contain nicotine. It is different from smoking because it does not involve burning. So, um, so when you smoke a cigarette, you're burning something, you're creating combustion products, leads to thousands of chemicals, and that is really, really nasty to inhale. Um, and the idea of vaping is that um, you are inhaling something, but it is a substantially less toxic and simpler um, aerosolized mixture. So I'll say right off the bat that um, we know how bad smoking is. We know the, the health harms that they've been documented at, at length. We don't yet know um, the problems that are likely to occur from chronic vape. So that's the first thing. So we we think, uh, we know that vaping is not harmless. I think that's that's the first issue. And so the question then becomes, well, what about the relative risks between smoking and vaping? I would say this, for, for all of our patients that are kind of going down this route, the first thing that you wanna do is reroute them into the things that we already know are kind of safe and effective and work. So getting them to really make sure that they're going to exhaust all of the, the options that we currently have. So making sure that they're willing to try and take the patch, the gum, the lozenge, inhaler, et cetera, the varenicline, the bupropion. We really want to emphasize those things with them, right? Because vaping is a big unknown. So I think that's the major, major message that we want to communicate. So try the standard treatments first, really exhaust them. If that does not work, or if they are totally unwilling, then um, you can say to them that in all likelihood, vaping is, is likely to be significantly less harmful compared with smoking. With the caveat that um, if they do are going to do that, they need to not use combustible products completely. So it needs to be a complete switch. There are some studies that have looked at uh, exposure to toxic substances. So they've looked at urine samples of different carcinogens and to make a long story short, if you are a solely using the e-cigarette and vaping, um, you have lower levels of um, toxic exposure than if you are using any combustible product. So there is some um, some evidence that um, that this could be reducing exposure. Now, what does this mean long term? We don't know yet. So we're not going to know these answers for you know 30, 40 years, right? But um, I think that's kind of how we want to to approach this. We don't want to come at them and say, "Sure, like just go and just go vape." That's that's the answer. No, we want to. That's think of think of vaping as like a second or third line, uh, you know, last ditch effort, right? Uh, and kind of a, a a means of of harm reduction when all else has failed. Steve, we had covered on the show. I think it was a 2019 New England Journal article where there were higher rates of quitting where for people who were using e-cigarettes. But at one year out, they were much more likely to still be on the e-cigarettes with nicotine. So you really just replaced the combustible cigarettes with the e-cigarettes with nicotine. Right. And, and that seems to be a – is that consistent across like more other studies as well? Yeah. I think what really what that study showed was that most of these people who are smoking need to be on nicotine replacement long term. I think that mm -hmm. that sort of is the take-home message. But you know it's important to note in that study, the um, the e-cigarette group uh, had twice the rate of smoking abstinence as compared with the um, the other nicotine replacement group. Now, some people might say, well, you know, that's still not necessarily a win because they're they're still on an e-cigarette, which has its own set of harms that we don't haven't fully characterized, right? And, th and that's the where there there's risk involved, I think, in um, in doing that. But I would say that again. It's very likely that it's the lesser of two evils, uh, especially when you're comparing it with smoking. 
But the ideal, of course, is that um, they're not smoking, they're not vaping, that they're just breathing clean air. And um, that will be what we would strive for whenever possible. And since yeah. we live in an imperfect world, um, and, and let's say we get a patient that does transition to vaping from from smoking tobacco, and they're actually they're, they're solely vaping, they're not using tobacco products. Do you have a cessation strategy for vaping? Because this is like, I feel like there's just no evidence or any kind of conversation as to how to talk about vaping cessation. Do you use the same nicotine replacement therapies or what, or do you just kind of let it ride? What, what is your approach to that? So now, yeah, so now we're in the wild west and so now we're, now we're no evidence. We're, we're, we're totally in the dark. So we're just gonna, we're just gonna do the best we can and, and, and uh, go from there. So I think, um, you know, I think a reasonable starting point just again, not based off of any evidence whatsoever. This is just pure conjecture. The best starting point is to just treat it similar to how we would treat smoking addiction. So just trying nicotine replacement, the combination of that with behavioral um, therapy. Whether and how that's going to work, um, we don't know. So that this is definitely a, a, um, a very fertile area for, for research. We have to find out the answer to this question because what we're going to see in the next... Um, 10 to 20 years is we're going to see patients who um, are vaping and have never smoked cigarettes before. That is the fastest growing um, population of tobacco users among young people. So, um, so that's something that we're likely to see not, not too far from here. Most currently, you know, most of the patients that we see who vape are either former smokers or, or they're transitioning or they're current smokers. There's some smoking uh, coexisting with it. But um, soon, Paul, as you're alluding to, we are going to be dealing with a big um, vaping addiction problem. And we're going to have to figure out um, the best way to to deal with that. For now, not having any evidence, I would prescribe them uh, nicotine patches, nicotine gum, and try to get them into uh, some behavioral counseling, use the same strategies that have worked for, for smoking addiction. Thank you. Yeah, it's an interesting problem. I know E-Valley, e the... Uh, the vaping associated lung injury was described in THC products specifically if there was this vitamin E acetate was that in any anyone just using just your non modified uh nicotine like e-cigarettes has has e-valley been described in any patients not using THC i don't know if you have the answer to that or not yeah but. yeah so um so e-valley uh, e-cigarette or vaping product use associated lung injury that very long uh <laughs> right. long convoluted name um, yeah, so so there um, there were definitely a subset of of cases that did not involve THC. So as you um, Matt alluded to, the vast majority of the cases were associated with uh, THC cartridges that many of which were contaminated with vitamin E acetate, which is a cutting agent that um, is added to to those liquids. Um, we don't really know if there are other mechanisms by which um, lung injuries occurred. So Evali could, it's likely, it's multiple things. So it it may have been predominantly um, a contaminated THC problem. There could be other um, mechanisms that are associated with it. And this is one question we're going to try to look at in our center is trying to figure out um, what are the characteristics of e-liquids and other tobacco products that are, that are associated with lung injury. But I think this is something we still have a long way to go um, in terms of uh, understanding the the mechanism and the different risk factors. And and it, it is complex. It could just be it could be host factors involved. There's sort of other um, other exposures that they have. So um, we have a lot to learn, I think, on that on that topic. Yeah, because it, it seems like it's calmed down. At least I'm not I'm not hearing about it as much, and I'm not sure if the rate of cases has slowed down. But I I, I haven't come across cases. For people who are using it um, as an e-cigarette, as a nicotine replacement, I have not come across uh, cases. So it seems like maybe that's more rare because if that was a possibility, I feel like it'd be hard to recommend it to patients uh, if if we were seeing cases of it. Yeah, I think it's definitely possible. I mean, we, we know that um, there, there are cases every year of, um, of acute lung injury just from cigarette smoking. So things like right. acute eosinoph- eosinophilic pneumonia. Um, so that does happen sporadically, and I think it's likely to happen sporadically with um, with e-cigarette use. I think the again, it, it is a problem. I think the much larger problem is going to be in the chronic users, just the way smoking yeah. is. So Steve, 
if you could give the audience just like two or three things that you really want them to remember from our talk, what, what would those be? I would just say that uh, cigarette smoking is one of the most difficult addictions for patients to overcome. Um, but we need to be positive, supportive, and accepting of our patients and just expect that the process of smoking cessation is going to be long and challenging. Um, but we just need to be patient, empathetic, and persistent, and we will be successful. All right. We're going to fade that into the outro. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. (laughs) Confident and strong. I like it. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And you can reach out to us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. And I wanted to give a special thanks to our producers for this episode, Carolyn Chan, Kate Grant did the cover art, Edison Jang did the infographic, and the great Cyrus Askin uh, helped as an editor. And to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov does our website, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. I will remind you that all healthcare professionals can get CME credit for this episode at thecurbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And thank you to VCU Health Continuing Education for helping us provide that free to our listeners. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Dr. Carolyn Chan. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for not composing our theme music and thanking Claire Morgan of Not Only for editing our audio. As always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>